You're listening to The Issues Podcast. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. This is an episode of The Issues Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Russ, Tom Brennan, and Martin Wickens. So uh, and, we're, I, and we're live. I which anyway. is good. <laughs> <laughs> live. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about books that we're reading. I think this can be edited appropriately for you there, Tom. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> we're talking about books that pastors are reading, and since we're the three pastors in the room, we thought we might just share a little bit of uh, our reading material these days. So, who wants to start? I nominate Mr. Wickens. I do too. I, I think that's uh, very appropriate. Um, well, I read the <laughs> book most recently on um, See No Evil by George Crabbe. Yeah. And just dealing with addictions and, um, you know, certain addictions in particular. And I thought it was very useful. I think a lot of those books, sometimes from a Christian perspective, they don't bring in the genuinely beneficial like studies and clinical things that that do have value or mm-hmm. they abandon the bible and it's all self-help seminars 10 steps yeah. to freedom you know whatever else um and i feel like he did a really good job of expounding scripture giving a biblical process you know bringing in the importance of the local church and brothers and sisters in christ to kind of help with um you know that kind of recovery and, and getting over it so yeah, I thought that was uh, it was is very very practical. Um, it's very good. Yeah, that's actually a book I have in my truck right now, and it's in my truck because it's on my reading list. But that's something that I'm looking forward to diving into. I'm glad to hear that you found it beneficial. But do you stack your books in like order of importance, or like do you have some kind of system to know? Yeah, I put them in order of how beneficial they are to me. Uh, what were you going to say, Tom? I was going to say, isn't Brother Crab? Isn't he working with Arby Willett to write some new curriculum for uh, their new um, addictions program up there? Yes, specifically with um, J.D. Howell, Arby Willett's pastor that followed him, and Correct. Bridge Bridge to Recovery, I think is what it's called. Um, but I think that that he is actually in Lancaster. Is that right, Martin? Yes, I believe so. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's what oh, I thought. He, and I, I appreciated what I heard when he spoke, but I haven't read the book yet. Does he teach there now? I'm not sure. I'm I think sure. he's teaching some classes maybe. Um, and I still guess he has his, his kind of main work on the side. But I went mm-hmm. to one of his uh, breakout sessions at the conference this year. And it was it was very helpful. Yeah, good. I thought so too. Tom, what about you? Uh, as we record this, it's a Tuesday. I put up a book review this morning. Um, I finished Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, now I've lost the title of it in my head. Preachers and Preaching, I think it was. Anyway, it's his classic mm. work on preaching. And um, I think I opened that book review with, I've never disagreed with a book so much that I like so much. Like there's so much mm. about that book to like, but he is very dogmatic. And I've read thousands of pages of his writing and he's not really dogmatic in his writing about his own opinion, but he is in this book. And he says that explains it. And I understand why, but as a consequence, there's whole sections of it. Like he's got a chapter where he, he basically just crucifies invitations as a concept. Um, and that's just the Calvinist in him coming out, I think. But there's so much about the book that is so beneficial in the sense of thinking your way through preparing yourself as a preacher 
uh, preparing your people, preparing your message, um, delivering a message. He even brings up the the sometimes controversial subject of should you preach sermons over again, and he deals with that mm. I think pretty well. Um, it was originally a set of lectures he delivered uh, to a university after he retired, and then he turned them into that book. And uh, I'm glad I read it. It was it, it was just just chock full of good stuff, even though there were there were whole sections of it I really disagreed with. But he's at Mark huh. Lloyd Jones is an old friend at this point. I've read so much of him. Um, but it's 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 a it's a good book for a mature preacher to read, um, or one that's been in the ministry mm-hmm. or been preaching for five or ten years. Maybe not, you know, a teenager or in his early twenties. But after you got some under your belt, yeah, good book. I started to say I, I can I could definitely hear you being passive aggressive directing that right toward me. I'll avoid the book, Tom. No worries. Stay I hadn't away. Even thought of you in relation to that, but you should put it on your stack, even if it's toward the bottom. You should put it on there. Yeah, I'll put it there. I'll put it there. I am currently so reading is it a worse book that he he wasn't targeting you, but like you didn't even cross his mind. Like, <laughs> what's what's worse? You guys are jerks. Um, so I'm reading a book right now entitled uh, "The Vision Driven Leader," and I got introduced to it through a podcast. It's a Michael Hyatt book. Um, and, you know, Michael Hyatt has a lot of Christian elements to what he does and faith-based elements to what he does. Um, he's very big on leadership, you know, I think kind of in the strain of a John Maxwell, that kind of deal. And so this is actually the first book I've read by him. I'm reading it for a specific purpose. Um, I'm reading it to try to grow in a specific area. <laughs> Thus far, I have found it to be pretty good. I mean, there are some good things that are coming out of it for me. At the same time, you know, I think I recognize that it is a results-driven, success-driven kind of mentality. But I like the fact that he keeps vision and mission at the front. And if you keep the vision clear, if you keep the mission straight and you lead your people, that could be a staff, that could be a church. Um, I think that's where it's helping me the most. And so I'm enjoying it. I'll probably say more about it when I finish it. Um, Maybe I'll finish it next year, <laughs> but I'll uh, I'll finish it nonetheless, and uh, we'll oh, see that's next week. See where it goes. Well, it depends on yeah, that's true. It depends on when people are listening to this. That's right. So that's a that's a good way. I think we may start a, occasionally a podcast or two with with this kind of thing and kind of let people know what we're reading or or what we're studying and um, and go from there. Today's topic is a little bit of a I, I want to say edgy, but maybe more so controversial topic. And so it does have an edge to it, and there will certainly be a lot of um, differing opinions on it. But our heart in this topic is to define it because it's it's very broadly defined by people and Christians. Um, we're trying to narrow it down to the definitions of Scripture. Debate it a little bit because this is one of those areas I don't know that we'll all three agree on. And for the sake of argument, we may even all three play a little bit of a devil's advocate. And ultimately... Our hope is to, at the end of this, draw a clear picture for how we can be um, biblical and helpful and fruitful and edifying in the process. And that is on the topic of restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." Very, very important passage of scripture. And so today we want to start just by kind of defining it. And in our preparation for this, Tom, I noticed that you had kind of written down a couple notes on what restoration is. So maybe maybe start us off with that today. 
Um, I, I like to start with words because words mean things and it helps if you have the same understanding of a word or if you're at least arguing over the understanding of the word so that you don't misunderstand mm-hmm. each other about that. But um, is it in The Princess Bride where that statement is you keep using that word? I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, <laughs> yep. And so um, I think restoration involves as a concept involves, first of all, restoration to fellowship with the Lord. It is so often we we run right in our minds to restoration to a position in ministry. Mm-hmm. Of course, the biblical concept is wider than that and narrower than that at the same time. Um, this the the individual in question is away from the Lord, and what they need restored to first is in their relationship with the Lord. Um, and I think that that cannot be rushed past, especially if it's one of those things where you have had a long-standing problem, some long-standing issue, something you've hidden, something you've struggled with. And, you know, if you struggle with something, I'm glad you're struggling, but, you know, that you're still fighting it. But and I think you guys understand what I mean there. But yes, the, the deeper, the more of a stronghold, let's use a Bible term, the more of a stronghold that it is, the deeper your repentance has to be. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the same as shame. It's not the same as, you know, I got caught. I, I read a book. Oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago by a missionary named Gabriel Rivera, who was a missionary um, in Europe and got caught with prostitutes and lost his wife and lost his ministry. And even his kids would not speak to him as of when he wrote the book. But he has an interesting quote in there. I just want to reference it just briefly. Let me see if I can find it in my notes about um, confession. I want to be clear about my confession. It did not come quickly nor easily. It did not come without first pointing out the sins of my wife. It did not come without me trying to explain and to minimize my sin. That is what Satan can do to anyone who does not have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Satan did to me. Selfishness, deception, and blaming others for not understanding you became your defense, but there is no true defense. You have to get to the place where you are naked before God, where you are broken before God. Um, And I think that is the first part of restoration, what it is as a concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's something that, and I, I love the quote, by the way, that you read. I'm going to get that book and it's going to the top of my stack, just so you know. But that is powerful because that's so true. I mean, how many times does someone have um, an issue, they sin, they fall, and their first concern is, how do I get back into my position? How do I get back into my service? Mm-hmm. Because, and, and let, me, let me just say this, I feel for that. I have, I, I think all of us might actually go there initially. You know, the Bible says, but by the grace of God, there go I. The verse that we just read said, said, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know, we always have to keep in mind that we have great potential for sin. And so I think the natural bend is toward looking for a restoration toward a position. But that's the most important thing. Why did David say, uh, that's not the most important thing, rather. David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, he didn't just hurt God. (laughs) He hurt a lot of people. He hurt his whole nation. But he acknowledged first and foremost that he needed restoration with God, which is why he said, ask God to cleanse his heart and restore the joy of his salvation. And that, I think that's the, go ahead. No, I was going to just say that's the, the theological basis of a lot of this is that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, but you can only really sin against God, can't you? I mean, you can offend mm-hmm. and hurt others, but, you know, I can break a law in the United States, but I wouldn't necessarily have broken a law in another country. And so sin is against God. Does mm-hmm. that 
Does that make sense? Sure. And I think that's why David wrote that in Psalm 51. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and so the, the dealing can, with the sin is first and foremost in our relationship with God. Y- yes, I agree with that. Absolutely. I, I, I think unless you can almost come to the place where you can write your own Psalm 51, whether mm-hmm. anybody ever reads it. Um, Have you ever counseled anyone to do that? Counseled anyone to do that? That's a good idea. Have you ever counseled anyone to do that? No. um, No, I haven't. Um, But he, obviously, he's processed a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I love how he, I first came to Psalm 51 as a teenager struggling with sin and that passage there about being broken, that God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires a broken spirit. And uh, mm-hmm. to again reference Rivera, he talks about, uh, you know, a broken spirit is not the same as shame. It's not the same as being as, as just confessing. Um, it's it's to the place where you are broken, not just over the fact you've lost your wife, your kids, your ministry, your reputation, your money, you know, et cetera. But you're broken over what you've done to God, mm-hmm. that there's Jesus who died for you, who loves you immeasurably, that you have done this to him. And it's often a a deep work that takes a uh, you know it's not an hour it, it it takes months and months to process sometimes it doesn't have to I'm saying I think I, I think restoration must start there with that deep work of restoration to fellowship with the Lord um, I also think it includes other things I think it includes um, restoration to fellowship with men in the sense of you don't sin against men but you do damage men people right mm-hmm. my sin. Mm-hmm would hurt my wife, would hurt my kids, would hurt my church. And when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about, um, the, uh, for instance, uh, thieves in Leviticus chapter 6, then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found. If we've been delivered something to keep, a ministry, and we've damaged it in the process of our sin, we can't put it back together, but I think we should seek to put it back together as much as we can. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think in some of the situations, and, and you know, I'm sure we've known of stuff in private as well as the high-profile stuff in Christianity, but there's a subconscious focus on the shame element of it because in the confession, there's almost the, in the same flow, they say, this is what I've done wrong. And this is what I'm going to do to get back. And so there's not even a question of whether or not they get to be restored. The assumption is I will be restored. And before my confession is almost finished, I'm already looking to make my way back. Yeah. And it kind of short circuits the process. Yeah, because they're looking at restoration as restoration to a pulpit, essentially, to a position. And that's mm-hmm. not what restoration is. Restoration means to 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 put back what was taken away. And if I took your reputation, if I took your money, if I took your peace of mind, if I'm not somehow actively working to restore that to you, then I'm not doing the work of restoration, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it, it there, there's uh, I'll just flat out say it. Dave House is running around the country talking about restoration. He's got a restoration ministry, but he is not a single time, to my knowledge, and I might not know everything he's ever said or done, but to my knowledge, not a single time has he ever publicly repented for what he's done, let alone sought to make restoration or amends to any of those women or churches involved. And I know many people personally in those situations. 
how can you say you're you're restored to some kind of a ministry when you've done nothing, literally nothing, to try to make whole what you broke? Do you think that's an overemphasis on the Psalm 51 against thee and thee only have I sinned without acknowledging the hurt done to man? I think that's the justification for it. I don't think it's right. an overemphasis. I think it's a justification for it. Yeah. And yeah. you have to, again, you have to balance that with, you know, these passages like Leviticus 6, which I read, this idea that we're going to put back together what we broke. And you can't always like do that. Most of the time you can't. But it, it's it's that hard and that working at it. Yeah, my mind goes to- some of that the, is- Go ahead, Martin. No, no, you go ahead, Stephen. Well, my mind just goes to the th- the story of Zacchaeus, his Im- immediate response oh, yeah. and his repentance was, I will repay these folks fourfold. Like anything I've taken, I'm going to do this because, and it, it wasn't a work unto salvation. It was a work because of salvation. It was a work because of God's grace and mercy in his life. And uh, I think that factors in. Go ahead, Martin. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I was just thinking, you know, there are extremes in, in everything. And I think one of the issues I've seen with public figures is sometimes the accused and the guilty, uh, rightfully accused, they somehow spin it into making themselves a victim of the consequences rather than saying, you know, what happened to me was right. I deserved what came. I, you know, and somehow they twist it to say, you know, I did wrong, but then, wow, look how much I suffered because of it. And, you know, and so they kind of change the narrative. And that's, I think, a dangerous uh situation i've seen several times mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that's that's kind of the reason for the conversation right i mean why have a conversation like this i was i'll just be honest i was telling martin beforehand i'm like why did we pick this topic what are we doing <laughs> but here we are so because we don't get enough email and messages and you know we're, we're just bored so we'd like to have <laughs> because some we don't get enough criticism <clears throat> anyway <laughs> So, so the, let's answer that well, question. Well, you welcome Why? criticism, you know. Speak for Speak yourself, Todd Alden. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, but public, uh, public criticism uh, can lead to public conversation and, you know, you can deal with things and have a conversation. So let's answer the question why we're having the conversation because this is headed down a road here, but <laughs> why, why would we bring this up? Martin, you had some good thoughts on that. I'm going to kick it to you. Well, I think we kind of dealt with the first reason I had in mind is we want to have this conversation so that we can honor God, honor God by not allowing men of disrepute uh, to stand in pulpits, to, to represent his name. And we're not looking to police what other people do. We're not saying that there's some kind of hierarchy that's that's needed. But as individuals, as local church pastors, we want to do our part to to honor the glory of God. And mm-hmm. and so I think it's a conversation to say, okay, what what do we think the process should be? You know, what is a disqualifying behavior? And so it's all about the glory of God. Um, and then to protect the people of God in local churches, because if we know somebody is guilty of something and we don't speak out and then that offense continues on down in church after church after church, then I think there is some culpability of those who could have said something uh, to try and help. So which is there the, are a couple of reasons I had in mind. Which is that idea of Matthew 18, which is go to a brother, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so often we have known of situations. And again, I don't think we have to take responsibility for every single person who ever does anything, you know, in a pulpit or else we're, no. we're you know, we're compromisers. But if a brother has done something wrong and we know it and we have some relationship with him, 
you know, his people are going to be hurt and the cause of Christ is going to be hurt, which is essentially the two things you just said, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the conversation we're having, you know, we, we are going to go into some of the, the murky waters of what kind of a transgression, although forgivable because God is a gracious God and he forgives, you know, there are still consequences and sometimes a consequence is permanent. Um, it doesn't mean the person can never share the gospel again. It doesn't mean they can't lead their families well and be an encouragement to brothers and sisters. But is there something that disqualifies them from office? And I think the final element of this conversation that in my mind is, um, you know, what's the pathway back? You know, if something happens to me or in my local church or if someone in my sphere of influence says, hey, I did this, you know, what do you think I need to do? to put things right, um, you know, I think we just want to have a conversation around those areas. Yeah, and that, that does, that's well said, well put. Where I think our, I think we need to make sure we frame the conversation correctly is that this is the part of the conversation that is the most crystal clear. We can be the most dogmatic. We can be the most, you know, uh, opinionated <laughs> about, here's what I think, this, 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 and this. But where we're going to get a little bit more into the weeds, and like I said, this is where the devil's advocate may pop up from one of the three of us at any given time, is that ultimately we want to draw the line where God draws it. Tom, you said that earlier, and I really caught on to that, that sentence uh, in an earlier conversation. It's like, where does God draw the line? So while we can talk about the definitions of this, we also want to talk about the potential for restoration because ultimately the... Well, I, I could say this. We've already started the, the conversation with placing the word restoration in a negative light. Does that make sense? Sure, because most of us probably have opinions, negative opinions about somebody else who's done it wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I it's mean, reactionary. Yeah, which is not which is not good. It's not a good not a good spot to be in. That, that's I find that's what I want to establish. Of, <laughs> I find like a weird split in my personality when it's somebody I know, I feel like I'm the quickest to be like, you moron. I mean, you absolute <laughs> whatever. And so my, my judgment can be quick to condemn, but then at the same time, I feel this temptation to be quick to try and see them restored. And, and mm. you know, with you know the definition of re restoration we've talked about, I think now we're talking about not restoration to God because that's primary and, and what you were talking about, Tom. But I guess from from this point on, when we say restoration, we're talking about public office. Would that be fair? Mm -hmm. It would be fair for you to say that, sure. <laughs> well, but just in terms of our heroes, well, what, instead of restoration, then what I understand we, what you mean. You, you're talking about restoration to a position, and and that really is. You know, what disqualifies a, a, let's just say it, what disqualifies a pastor, what disqualifies an evangelist, what, what is it that he would do that would say, you know, he could never hold that biblical position again. He could be useful to the Lord, but he could never hold that biblical position again. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of guys draw that line too black, too thick, mm. um, or maybe too high to use another illustration. Um is yeah <laughs> well and i think sometimes the <laughs> the victim the the victim of someone who's been hurt may be the one to say actually no they should never go back and that may not be 
the fairest opinion. And I guess in the court of law, that's why judgments are made not by the victim, but by the peers. And and I know there's all kinds of qualifiers to this and, you know, what kind of abuse exactly are we talking about? But, you know, the the offended can't be the final voice as to whether or not someone gets to be put back into office. And that's where we're getting muddy. That was that statement right there is so ah why are we having this conversation? Oh yeah. So so yeah like we we I mean there are so many wrong. places where that phrase because you have to define everything. Okay, what do you mean by victim? What do you mean by abuse? What do you mean by restore to office? What do you mean by you know it's so I get that. Um you know well, let, let's just also make this clear that that restoration is not just about pastors who fall. Restoration could be a marriage no. after adultery. Restoration could be a pastor after what I've listed as the the three, the three, uh, the big three: adultery, abuse, or addiction. And a lot of things fall under that. Um, restoration of a of a Christian after church discipline. I mean, there's there is mm-hmm. that. Uh, all of that is in the Bible, and and I think that in Galatians that that would probably be the most applicable. To what the Bible is saying there, that if Completely a brother, agree. I mean, yeah. we're, we're talking about Christians in general, but where we get the most heated and emotional and reactionary is when we see leaders fail. So obviously it's got to be part of the conversation and that's where we get mm-hmm. the most dogmatic and definitive. Whereas what Martin just said, I think is true, that it cannot be driven exclusively by where the victim is at emotionally. And that's, that is, oh my goodness, going to be so easy to misrepresent what we just said there, but let's just continue on and see if we can define it. So if you can't let the victim draw the, draw the line, um, Mm -hmm. what draws the line before we argue about where the line is, what draws the line? (laughs) What's that? It should be scripture. Right. Right. So where does scripture draw the line for those things? That's the question. Are you saying, okay, what are the, what are the sins that are disqualifiers? Okay, yeah, I think so we should talk about that. For for a pastor to be a pastor, he has to qualify according to First Timothy chapter three, right? Those list of qualifications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even if he has done one of these particular sins, we would mention if he hasn't put all that list of things back together. Okay, let's say that you talk about addiction. Let's say he's addicted to the gambling boats in town, and he goes down, and you know his own money, but he does it, and it's wrong. He gets caught and come to light, and he he fixes the problem. You know. If he damages his marriage in the process, even if he solves his gambling problem and gets right with the Lord, if he doesn't put his marriage back together in such a way that it's healthy enough to be a pastor, then he shouldn't pastor, even though he's past the gambling point. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And people may disagree mm-hmm. with me about the gambling issue, but regardless of that particular issue, unless you also have, have fixed or you know soundly established that list of qualifiers, um, that that has to be done in addition to whatever particular sin you're talking about. Um, but the, the the gray area on this is where, again, I, I actually put this text in our notes here today, guys. Blameless, one wife, vigilant, sober, good behavior, hospitality, teaching, not given to wine, not a striker, not, you know, pursuing money, patient, not a brawler, one that rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity, you know, those kind of things, not a novice all of that. Um, I do feel like we take those things to the extreme sometimes where if someone were to transgress against one of those one time, we would say, well, you know, we could never trust him again, or we could never trust that person again. But that's not what restoration is all about. What do you think some of those things are? It's about reputation. And so yeah, that's why blameless is first. 
if your sin has been severe enough and public enough that every time you stood up, somebody goes, oh, isn't that so-and-so, he did this, and the gospel message is tarnished or, or, or lost, um, do you think there's a factor in it? And, and you almost need the process of time for enough people to say, okay, that's who he used to be. Um, it's, it, it's one thing for you to say you need a factor of time in in a, in a scenario that would fall under the word blameless. It's another thing to say, if you've done something, you will never be blameless again. Right. To draw a line where right, God doesn't yeah. draw. That word blameless is so big, you can jam so mm-hmm. many things through it, where mm-hmm. it's something that you view a brother does, well, he will never be blameless again. And another person would say, well, that's not true. Is, is a bankruptcy that way? Is the gambling mm-hmm. that I just mentioned that way? Is pornography that way? Is adultery that way? I had a rather interesting conversation with my wife and my daughter about this podcast. And I I, I brought it up with them. I said, you know, talk to me a little bit about, about, you know, where you're at with this thing. And I wish I could have recorded it. It was an interesting conversation. But one of the things that my wife said is she said, I could never sit under a pastor that I knew had committed adultery as a pastor. I could not, mm-hmm. even if it was 10 or 20 years ago, I couldn't let him pastor me. And she had initially said he should never pastor again. And I told her, I said, but you're drawing a line God doesn't draw. God draws the line at husband of one wife. He doesn't draw the line at adultery in First Timothy chapter 3. And obviously, I'm not condoning adultery. If you commit adultery, you know, you got to put your marriage back together, you know, and you got to be right with God, all that other stuff. But I don't think... It's fair for a person to say, I can't sit in a church knowing my pastor had pa- had committed adultery. I could not trust him again. I get that. I understand that. But it's not the same thing as saying no pastor who ever committed adultery should ever pastor again. I don't think you can make that statement biblically, even under the word blameless. Mm. And you guys may disagree is, with me about that. But I think this is where it kind of gets subjective and, and even – it's why it's a conversation for the wider church, not just for like a council of, of men, because there are times where I may say, okay, I don't like this about this guy, but I'm okay to be around him. But then my wife might say, you know what? Just something doesn't feel right. And and I'm not saying about trust in feelings, but just that kind of sixth sense that says, you know what? Something just doesn't, something's off. And, and I know that seems massively subjective, but um I feel like there's some weight to that. I agree. And I think that's where, you know, a church has to vote on a pastor. And if a pastor is going to candidate and he has that in his background, I think mm-hmm. he needs to bring that up with the public committee at least. I mean, somebody does so that it doesn't get sprung on him five years later and everybody's mad. Mm-hmm. And the church needs to process that. And if the church chooses to vote him down as a candidate because of that, I don't have an issue with that. That's a church rendering judgment on the will of God for their church. But that's different mm-hmm. than saying, Here's a, here's a particular category of sin that if you do this sin, you can never okay. pastor again. Now, I'll, I'll give you one I think is a biblical category. I think if you harm children, that you should never pastor again. Mm-hmm. If you're pastoring and you're mm-hmm. harming children, and the reason I say that is because the Bible says in Luke 17, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. That's irrevocable in my mind. And I think that's mm-hmm. a biblical line. I don't think that's just an emotional thing, even though we all understand it emotionally. I think you can make an argument, at least, that that's a biblical line, that if you've hurt children while you were in the ministry, that you should never be in the ministry again. Um, but there's just not a lot of lines like that in the Bible. 
That's just uh, at least as 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 I see it. Yeah. Okay. So this is a question I have on that. Can we claim something to be a permanent disqualification based on reputational issues alone? In other words, someone did something one time and therefore they're not usable in a specific position. So where where God may not have a limitation, man may have a limitation, right? Because Martin, you just described maybe, or Tom, I think you said your wife said she could not do a certain thing knowing that that's a limitation, but is that God's limitation or her limitation? And I'm just being hypothetical just for the record. So don't we have to be careful about that? Don't we have to draw the line where God draws the line? I mean, some like, for, okay, for instance, um, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot on, or unruly right now, there's this big move that, Oh, that guy covered sin. He should never be a pastor ever again. Okay. I'm against covering sin. 1000%. And I don't think a pastor should ever do that. But some of the same pastors who would take that approach of he covered sin, he can no longer be in ministry, may have children who are accused of riot or unruly. And they're like, well, you know, this is just part of life. We just got to get through this. So isn't the application just a little bit skewed based upon our emotional reaction to reputational issues? I think that's always the danger in interpreting the word of God, isn't it? Applying it to someone else instead of myself or applying it through my own lens. Mm-hmm. Um, not looking through the lens of scripture. Um, I mean, that's a that's a, a bigger discussion, but I think that's an illustration of that. Um, Martin, let me ask you directly. Do you think that there are things? Okay, let me ask you this. W- w- would you give me two or three things? Are there more things that you think disqualify a man from ever holding a biblical position, which would be pastor, deacon, or evangelist? Can, can you, is your list longer than mine? I would put it into a category of, of victim, such as with harm in a child. Um, there are other sins against individuals where it's, you know, with adultery, it's consensual. Um, the One of the, the distinguishing features of harm in a child is that they are victims in every way. They can't consent to the harm that happens to them. Um, and so I think there are other kinds of sexual mm, sins yeah. where the individual is a, you know, a, a, an entire victim. There's no consensual element to it. Um, and, you know, I, I know I've had discussions before, you know, if someone murders someone else, does that disqualify them from office? And I've heard people argue, <laughs> well, actually, the Bible says it doesn't. Um, but I would say on a, a reputational level, that has done tremendous harm. And it's not to say they can't do something for the Lord, but, you know, in, in terms of an office, um, and especially, you know, if you look at a situation and we've known Was of something. Paul a murderer? Yeah, right. I mean, obviously, that's what we're all thinking, right? And, and, and Moses mm-hmm. and David, but not, none of those were, you know, directly applicable. But I think Apostle, I think you see a pattern Paul. in the Word of God. Yeah, yeah, but, but if if it was if before Paul salvation, had, so and and again, I know we can't put everything before he was saved, but you know, if Paul had his, you know, got to what is it Acts twenty, and there's the Council of Jerusalem, and he's like, "You guys are just," and he just like lays one of them out <laughs> like Santa did, um, you know. And thank you. We we needed that relief right there. So. 
But like, if, if he had done that as an apostle, as a church planter, if he had turned around and, and just, you know, laid one on Peter and Peter falls back, cracks his head and dies. And, you know, could you turn around and say, all right, Paul, here's, here's the process. You need to put things right. You know, I, I think what he did before he was saved compared to what he did, you know, if he did the same thing later. Okay. Um, so there's let a me different push back. Yeah, no, I understand. There. I agree with that mostly. Some of what you're saying, though, about reputation and damage and public and everybody knows you, you take, and this is not normative because, again, it's not strictly applicable, but you take Moses, for example. So Moses, whether it's self-defense or not, depending how you view that, he kills that man. So then mm-hmm. God moves him. God moves him from Egypt to Midian for 40 years, four decades, um, and then brings him back to Egypt to lead his people. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wasn't that he could never be the leader he wanted to be as a result of that sin or that crime, but it's the idea that God moved him away long enough so that 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 blameless thing or reputational thing was not an issue later. And I think there's some wisdom Mm -hmm. uh, to to that sort of thing. I think if you help a guy you're trying to restore, Mm. move away from his area, I think that can often help his family, can help his church. As long as he's not running from stuff. Yeah. Right. And I think we need to be clear that we're not talking about moving someone to hide their sin. No. Right. You know, Good because call. that, that hap- we know that's happened where someone has been right. moved somewhere else mm-hmm. as a deliberate measure of covering up. And, and that's yes. not what we're saying because where they go, you know, they need to be upfront. And, and let's be honest, this whole conversation is so much more complicated in <laughs> the social media era because, yes. you know, back in the day, it, you know, so many of the situations we're aware of, we, we wouldn't have known about. You know, it just mm-hmm. it happened in a different geographical, mm-hmm. you know, setup. And so it is a lot more difficult today. And I think this is where the conversation around reputation is mm-hmm. not as simple as it maybe used to be. And you're right. Right. You're right about that. That's fair. I agree. And, but, and that, that goes back to the limitation of man, though, because God doesn't change. So mm-hmm. let me do this. Let me just kind of ask this question. Are we able to, in this time frame that we have, are we able to come up with a list of anything that is permanently disqualifying? I think all three of us agree that harming a child is disqualifying. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Not that all three of us should the be all and end all, but I think we would all agree on that. Agreed. I'm not sure all three of us would agree about divorce even, but mm, we'd maybe, be we close. Not even, maybe we should not even go down that road so we don't, we don't have time to discuss <laughs> that too. That's all. Well, we know that there are, there's things like that where there are good people on both sides, you yes, know, right. but in I the area of harming a child, you know, there are not good people on both sides of that no, question. There's not. There's, yeah. Fair um, statement. That's a fair statement. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so, so we have that we have the harming a child and why are we having a hard time coming up with more? I mean, are we saying that some sins are permanently disqualifying? See, for me, you know, Martin, you said if a pastor goes out and commits murder, is he disqualified? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I I would say so, especially as a pastor. Okay. I mean, every, every Mm -hmm. illustration we threw out there as a devil's advocate was prior to salvation, Paul, Moses, all that kind of thing. And so that's, that's what that conversation is about. Yeah, I mean, First John says, "No murderer hath eternal life abiding in him." I mean, that's a that's a thorny yeah. passage on its own face. But yes, I could see that as a line drawn on the Word of God. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a big deal, and it it's probably it's probably impossible, humanly speaking, 
for someone to come back as having served 20 years for murder he committed while he was a pastor and then start pastoring a church again i mean that's that's not advisable well, at all a conservative you know, church yeah. yes but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see a guy in a pulpit again. <laughs> yeah. and i don't know of any church that's done that fyi so that's no. that's that well so when i was in northern ireland i was going around doing door-to-door work with this guy and he was the quietest softest spoken gentleman you can imagine but i noticed that when he talked to people they listened and <laughs> later on and, and later on you know as we got to know each other better it turned out he'd been in the paramilitaries had brutally murdered a man uh i mean brutally mm. wow. um then he got saved while he was in prison released during the good friday agreement with you know ian paisley and tony blair and the um the american um clinton um and <laughs> had to think about that did you <laughs> the yeah and so the man he was was changed but if he'd been seen as a pastor, that would have been a very different, I think, um, scenario. Mm. Okay. So so let's, before we run out of time, let's dive into something a little different here. Then what is, what is the biblical approach to restoration? What is the pathway? Because the Bible does say that restoration is the goal. We've spent, you know, almost 30 minutes talking about the negative side and we've not exhausted the topic. But over here on the other side is the Bible says that we are to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about some things that need to be done. I know for me, while we're talking about repentance and restoration a few moments ago, I turned to Second Corinthians chapter 7. And that is to say that true, genuine repentance is the very first step, in my opinion, based on what Scripture says. I think it'd be more than an opinion. Because Paul said, I rejoice that you were made sorry, not that you, yeah. but that you sorrowed to repentance. You were made sorry after a godly manner. And it says, godly sorrow work with repentance of salvation, not to be repented of. In other words, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I've always heard that sorrow of the world defined as, sorry, I got caught. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the consequences. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I would agree that that's what it is. Is that fair? Yes, I agree with that. So this this godly sorrow is David's sorrow against thee and thee only have I sinned, a true repentance right. toward the Lord. And I love what the next verse says, if I could read Second uh, Corinthians seven eleven. This is spoken to a church that Paul rebuked sternly, and they responded with true repentance. He said, behold, this selfsame thing, what that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, and what revenge in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I mean, this is a church that had some of the worst stuff in the world going on in the church. And Paul says, you're clear in this matter. That's a fantastic verse to bring up in this context, because it really shows that so much of the work of restoration is a heart work and a mm-hmm. behind the scenes work to, to seek to mend what you broke. Um, and, and to, to pursue Christ yeah. and to pursue being like Christ long before you ever pursue that pulpit again. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's a you great had, passage. The way I've, I've kind of structured this in my mind is you had Paul's strong reproof. Then you had their personal response, which is actually found in verse one. And it says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Meaning that what Tom, what you said, putting back what we lost 
And then the result is what we just read in verse 11, that now they're careful, they are clear, they're angry at sin again. You're never right. angry at sin when you're committing it. I'm sorry, you're just not. You're f- what fear? You have the fear of the Lord that you didn't have before. You have vehement desire. I think that's a vehement desire toward purity and holiness. And then you are zealous. You zealously pursue that holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. And then it's, I love this word, what revenge. Someone who has sinned and then gets right with God is actually taking revenge on their sin. How awesome is that? That just, yeah. mm, that's good. Yeah, it's powerful. So and sometimes the most passionate person against a certain type of sin is one who has oh, yeah. fallen to it, you know, and they, they really see the dangers and the hurt is all caused. Yes. I think this, because so much of restoration is an internal work of the Lord and of the Holy Spirit, I think there's real wisdom. Um, and I think you can see this in Galatians 6. Ye which are spiritual restore such a one. There's the active involvement of other brothers in Christ. And I right. think this mm-hmm. idea, whether we want to right. call it counseling or we want to call it accountability or we want to call it mm. some sort of mentoring or partnership where you put yourself under someone or several someone's to, for them to guide you or, or work with you through this process to make sure you're seeing things clearly and you're removing the the stones in your field that need to be removed, so to speak. And and so I think their restoration almost always needs to involve someone besides just you. Um, it's, yes. it, it's, it's got to involve, which then takes away from you your own decision making that I'm, I'm fixed, I'm ready, I'm good. It would then involve there has to be some consensual agreement to that amongst the other people that are working with you, right? Yeah, but I would also say mm-hmm. at the same time, it needs to involve people who are other than you. You know, you can't do it alone, but you also can't do it with everybody because everybody is not spiritual. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. You know, and that's where it's, think- it's hard because public confession and restoration is difficult without transparency. But there are some things in the process of that restoration or the process of that repentance Oh man, this is this is literally case by case. So please bear with me. That should not be revealed to everybody. Does that make sense? I think if I understand you, it's I think it needs to be transparent to the local church where the offense took place mm-hmm. in in terms of full disclosure. Uh, what I don't like is when you see someone who you know gets up and says. I did this, I'm stepping down, I've got this council of men and they're going to work with me. And then like six weeks later, the guy gets back up and says, this council of men says, now I'm ready and Mm. I'm back. And everybody claps and, you know, and it's like, well, where was the local church in this? You know, does the local church know everything that happened? Do they know what you did to put it right? Has there been a time frame that's worthy of being able to say, like Paul did to the Corinthian church, um, you know, this is now where you are. This is what you used to be. And there are several passages where Paul says, and such were some of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, so it may be the, and where I'm thinking is where you get these like public figures who seek to influence and hold seminars and conferences and, and all this. And they, they're transparent enough to take your cash, but then they're not transparent <laughs> enough to say, this is what I did. And this is how I put it right. So I think the local church has to know. So I think that has to be, I agree with that. 
with the caveat that you're talking about men in ministry. I think First Timothy is clear that if you're in the ministry and you send right. that passage, them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's mm-hmm. the same thing necessarily true if I have, um, and I'm not trying to equate levels of God's people, so please don't take that wrong. But it's not the same thing as if if my my head usher has got a gambling problem. I don't think he needs to confess that in front of the whole church. Right. I think right. public sin right. requires public confession. Private okay. sin requires private confession, except in the case of a man in the ministry. I think that needs to be public in the local church in which it was done or mm-hmm. within the ministry with which it was done, even if it's a wider ministry. And so I think we agree with each other. I just wanted to add that caveat there. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and, and so I hope my point was was understood. But I just know that in counseling, because Tom, you said, you know, in counseling, even even if it's a pastor, there's not, boy, there's, there's, mm, maybe I'm just talking about something entirely different right now. Well, you don't have to go through well, a global upload description to be transparent. Yeah, that's what no. I'm talking about. That's right. What I it mean. doesn't have to be kind of gratuitous in its detail. And something else, you know, I think I would add even to what I was saying is if there's been a victim that doesn't want to be revealed. You know, uh, yeah, you know, and it may be in the case of a, yeah. a child that was harmed. Now, if it goes through illegal proceedings, then it's going to be revealed. But it may be that the victim can be proven without having to be named. Um, yeah, and, and the thing that we would want to be, the thing we'd want to be clear on is is that we are, for instance, that video that surfaced about the pastor who got up and. You know, he confessed to his church about having an affair years ago and this, that, and the other and said, you know, at the, and so I'm sorry. And the church stood and, and applauded him. And then right behind him stood, you know, the person walked up and, and she's like, um, I was a minor mm-hmm. when this happened. And he didn't, he didn't tell that part. You know, I, right. I don't even know who that was. I don't know. And I don't want to, I don't want to use this as a gossip session because I, I'm no, just using no. it as an example. But that kind of thing is like, oh my, no, that's so omitting that information is a problem. Yeah. I think, and I I know I'm kind of weighting the conversation heavily towards public figures, but I almost wonder if it should be more of a case of not someone saying I'm back, (laughs) but them just staying on the sidelines, you know, being faithful and then people approaching them again and saying, okay, we think you're ready rather than Mm -hmm. it being initiated by the accused by the guilty party, um, you know, it ought to be the case where they're kind of observed and invited back. Isn't that what the Lord does in First Timothy chapter one, where Paul said, um, "I was, you were counted faithful. I was counted faithful. Mm. God put me in the ministry. Not that we don't yes. ever do anything to to get into it, but that sense of the Lord has viewed me as ready, and He has placed me into the ministry and." Usually, if you're pursuing a position, it's proof you're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Usually, I mean that's just that's that's broadly speaking about everything. And right. something that you know, I've been, you know, it's been on my mind as well is, I want our brothers and sisters in Christ to know that we want there to be a path to restoration. We're not talking about. I I don't want to weight the conversation so heavily towards guilt and consequence that people have the instinct just to hide it because they think, man, these, these guys are brutal. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I want it to be, look, if you, if you are guilty of something, let's deal with it. You know, let's, let's make sure you are, you are truly convicted. You want to put it right. 
and then we'll see what the Lord does down the line. So I know some of what I've said may have been very much weighted towards condemnation, but I, I think we need to be clear as well that, look, if you are guilty, let's put it right. You know, David could never have been called a man after God's own heart if he'd only been guilty of the sins he committed without the Psalm 51 element of his heart. And I would echo that very strongly, and I'm very glad that you said that. Um, we preach the Word of God as preachers. The Word of God is the revelation of God. It shows us who God is. One of the things we see about God in the Bible is that He's a restorer. Psalm 23, mm-hmm. He restoreth my soul. You see it mm-hmm. all over the Bible. Moses, Paul, David, you know, these these situations of, of men. Peter, I think of Peter, who cursed and swore and denied the Lord. Right. And in mm-hmm. essentially what was in public and Jesus mm-hmm. tenorous to him. And, you know, he, he becomes essentially, I mean, 50 days later, he's preaching at Pentecost. And again, I don't want to extrapolate too much from that. But the idea is what you see is you see a God who is very tender, who is rich in mercy. Mercy rejoices against judgment, James says. And I think if we're God's people, we'll have God's heartbeat about about those things. And I think that's well mm-hmm. said, Martin. I think, you know, 15 years later or 10, 15 years later, Paul openly rebuked Peter and and said, you know, you're guilty of this. You're sitting with the Jewish brethren and ignoring the Gentiles. And, you know, I think there was a, and we know Paul's heart was ultimately to put things right, not just to say, you know, you're a terrible man. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, boy, we've talked a lot. (laughs) Did we get anywhere? (laughs) I guess that's for our uh, listeners and the Lord to decide. Yeah. It's help me. me. I, I think that's what we could all agree on, right? Is these conversations help us, if anything, talking about them out, talking about the topic out loud and sharpening each other against the word of God. Man, what a what a helpful thing. I think if nothing else, hopefully we can show that it's it's not a simple process, but it is possible. Um that it's not easy, but it is something that we have to have some kind of an idea about. And then, Stephen, you mentioned earlier, um, it's a case-by-case matter for a lot of things. And and I think that's that that sense of patience um, with each other as we make these decisions and as we even as we verbalize where we're at thinking through these things. Uh, let's be let's be patient and kind and thoughtful. Let's be gracious. Let's use the Bible word. Let's let's treat each other with grace, brother Russ. Uh, your your I really appreciated that passage you brought out in Corinthians and your your thoughts you've given us today. Uh, why don't you take a moment and summarize for us where we've been and where we're at and what we think we've learned today? I'd be happy to. Restoration, a difficult but important topic of conversation. At its core, restoration is about returning something to its original state or condition. In the context of Scripture, restoration often refers to the act of God restoring individuals or groups to a state of wholeness and health after having experienced brokenness, sin, or destruction. God restored Job, a righteous man who suffered devastating losses, including the death of his children and loss of his wealth and his health. God restored the prodigal a rebellious and sinful man who squandered the blessings given to him by his father. In all of the illustrations we see of restoration, it is God taking the most brokenhearted and the greatest failures and turning them into something beautiful and whole again. The particulars of this important ministry are difficult to narrow down. Even in this conversation, 
We have a heart for justice and a heart for churches to be safe and pure. We struggle and we wonder if it's worth it to invest in restoring sinners. But it is worth it. Restoration in the Bible is always accompanied by a sense of joy and celebration. When something that was lost is found, or when someone who is broken is restored to wholeness, there is a sense of joy and happiness. This is exemplified in the story of the prodigal son, where the father throws a party to celebrate the son's return. It's also seen in the story of Job, where God restores him to a state of abundance and blessings. In both cases, there is a sense of joy and celebration. Why? Because the biblical principle of restoration is a reminder of God's love and faithfulness. Let us be thankful that through forgiveness, repentance, and a willingness to turn toward God, sinners can experience true restoration and healing in their lives and in Christ's church. Your friends, Tom, Martin, and Stephen.